With the Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Did you ever warrant the arrest for the murder of William Lowe, who was the gas station attendant? But you're wrong. From NBI Studios, this is Truth and Justice. A crowdsourced investigation in real time. I'm Bob Ruff. everybody and welcome back to Truth and Justice. This is your Friday follow-up episode for season 7 episode 24. What did I title it? It was 180 degrees. Yeah, something like that. A complete 180. Oh, yeah. A complete 180. Yeah, and it was it was called a complete 180 because um obviously it changed two things. It changed the direction, I think in a lot of ways of our investigation or has the potential to change the direction of our investigation and also of course there was the fact that we discovered the bill's body had been moved 180 degrees now this week uh it's been a while but i'm joined in the studio only by my co-host and producer extraordinaire mr mike bussing yep just like old times bob yep it really is just like old times so zach is under the weather today actually him and his entire family are under the weather so he couldn't make it in today, uh, which is fine because we have actually a lot of questions. This episode definitely got the listeners, all of you guys, um, pretty fired up. I think it's the most questions we've had in a follow-up thread in, in a long time. Yeah, and that's not to mention all the comments people put under your post with the pictures of the crime scene. Yeah, the, the new crime scene diagrams, uh, which those can be found at on the fan page. I found I was putting together a diagram. Um, uh, apologies to Pamela Westby, who has been working on this and done a very nice job digitally creating a crime scene diagram. I wasn't really aware that that was happening, but uh, I was interviewing with Jim Clementi last night and I needed to get him a diagram. So I spent the better part of the day going through the few crime scene photos we have and literally taking measurements off of um, cinder blocks on the walls and things to try to talk to Jeannie Luna, trying to lay out the crime scene properly. Um, and I put that up yesterday and, uh, I think that I think the, if you look for Pamela's, I think hers is actually better than mine. Cause it, mine's literally me drawing with a Sharpie and hers is uh, digitally done. But anyway, there has been a lot of discussion this week, um, uh, both on the follow-up thread and on posts that you all have made. And like Mike said, under the, the diagram. So we got a lot to talk about. So let's go ahead and get right into your questions. Texas Ranger James Holland is a legendary interrogator. They call him the serial killer whisperer. You can't hide those indications, and that's why yesterday I knew that you did it. But now, shocking interrogation tapes reveal how the super cop really operates. And that's why they asked me to come in, because I'm special. From something else, The Marshall Project and Sony Music Entertainment, this is Smokescreen. Just say you're sorry. Listen and follow on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Amazon Music, Stitcher, or wherever you get your podcasts. 
All right, our first question comes from Sandy. She wants to know whether or not we can confirm that the cash drawer insert was missing. Yeah, for sure it was missing. Uh, In the crime scene photo, we have one photo that shows behind the counter. And you can see the the, the drawer is open, the the insert is gone. It's also noted in the police reports that the, the insert was for sure missing. It was taken. All right, then Melinda says, if Bill did possibly come in contact with his killer, do the Bloomington police still have his clothing? Wishful thinking here, but if so, could that fancy MVAC machine be used? As far as I know, yes, they still have the clothing. I've actually discussed this with Tara Thompson, uh, Jamie's attorney. I told her about MVAC, and and I haven't spoken to her recently, but last I knew she was going to be checking into that. Uh, With this new information and and putting this crime scene together uh, and having a little better idea of what happened, I think it's even more imperative now than ever before that we try to MVAC those clothes. But that, that was exactly my suggestion. Uh, sounded like the clothes are still there somewhere. They have them in evidence uh, that we, we run those through MVAC. And I, I feel pretty confident at this point that we're likely to find some foreign DNA on his clothing. Ron says, do we know where the blood spot was relative to the body? I got the impression there wasn't much blood, just entrance wounds. Th- that's true. There wasn't much blood at all. And that's because, so Bill, both shots were with a twenty two caliber, which is a very, very smaller Smaller than a standard pencil, a little bit smaller than that is how big the bullets are. So you have two entrance wounds about that size, no exit wound. So usually when you have a lot of blood spatter with a higher caliber weapon, it passes through the body. It actually opens up the bullet, mushrooms out, and makes a bigger hole on the other side. And then with the velocity of it passing through, it shoots blood out the back. Then you have two holes, bigger holes, for blood to come out of. In this case, we only have the one entrance, two entrance wounds. No exit wound on either one. They're very small entrance wounds, and they both they, they crisscrossed and and punctured, severed all four chambers of the heart, which means immediately Bill had no blood pressure, which means that he you know his, his heart is not going to pump blood out of those entrance wounds. Now he was found sounds like almost face down, but slightly on his left side. So you know gravity would would let some blood a little bit of blood come out just for just just from gravity instead of pressure out of those entrance wounds but again as as both Pilo and Williams described him he was kind of on his left side so it wasn't straight down and he had very small wounds and he was wearing an undershirt and another shirt over it so the little bit of blood that would come out would have been absorbed into the shirt so we have very little there was a blood drop no picture of it of course no diagram of it of course but we just just know from Kalal's report that there was one blood drop on the floor and that he swabbed it. And then from, I don't remember which other officer's report it was, um, but there was some blood, a small amount of blood on a shelf on the back of the counter, like on the, on the clerk's side of the counter. Sounds like out towards the end, uh, there was a little bit of blood there. And that, that's all there was. All right, Stephanie says, if I remember correctly, in one of the early episodes of this season, you'd mentioned that Bill had said that he had some knowledge about the culprits in a previous robbery. I am thinking it's likely that he saw whomever he had heard to be committing these robberies suspiciously casing the store, then called to see if he could get Danny back for backup, and then confronted them. Also, what if one of the no-sales was for change so the perpetrator could get a quick look at what was in the register? I think it's possible, but... It's hard to say. I can't say that he didn't for sure recognize 
whoever it was that he was perceiving as a threat. But it just doesn't seem likely to me. It it it, it seems like I would think that he would have been more specific if it was going on from before Danny Hartley was there, that he would have said something to Hartley about it. And when he called Michelle, I just feel like he'd have been more specific. You know, if he was like, oh, these these guys I know are hanging around the store that that I think they're going to do something as opposed to I feel like something's going to happen. I just want Danny to come back here because of the lack of specificity. I think that it's it's more likely that he saw someone that was acting suspicious. So either someone's coming in and out of the store you know, a couple of times, they're lingering, or he sees somebody outside, you know, driving the parking lot, staring. You know, he could have been made uncomfortable by by Wiley Holt. Even you know, we don't know, and that you know, that's just just an, a thing that could have happened. I'm not saying that did happen, but. Just because we know that Wiley is connected to some people who have done armed robberies, maybe if he was there casing the place, he said something or asked some questions that made him uncomfortable. There's a lot of things that could have made him uncomfortable that wouldn't have been something really clear that he would have told Michelle, as opposed to like if there's people there that he recognized and knew, like, hey, these guys that robbed this place in Leroy are hanging around. Can Danny come back? You know, because he just said he feels like something's going to happen. I feel like something that he, like we said last week, he just couldn't put his finger on the problem, but he knew there was somebody or something there that was making him uncomfortable. He wasn't having a premonition, I don't think. All right, Evan says, Wiley Holt is either part of the craziest timing ever or part of the event. You seem to believe that he wasn't a totally innocent bystander, but stop short of attributing his actions to something nefarious. Why would you think he was in on parts but wouldn't be lying about everything? I don't necessarily think that he was in on parts. I think that his connection, which could be nothing, by the way, the Jeffs could have nothing to do with this. Wiley could have nothing to do with this. But let's say that the the Jeffs are connected to this and Wiley is connected. It could be that he's not lying at all. His importance comes in to me in the fact that he knew too soon. So it's a, that would be an indication that someone in his circle was involved in the crime. So so you know, the, the way that Wiley Holt could be connected, could be connected, but also have done nothing wrong, would be if, say, for example, the Jeffs committed the murder, and then Jeff Durbin, the cab driver, tells John, the other cab driver, Holt, John Holt, he tells him, hey, they, you know, somebody just got shot at the Clark station, crazy. And then John tells Wiley, hey, the Clark station up there on Empire and Linden, somebody got shot and killed there. And then so Wiley tells him, and Wiley's like, well, I was there. I saw somebody. I better go tell police. That is a way that he's connected. He found out too soon because Jeff Durbin was involved in the murder and had inside knowledge and it got it to him too quick. But Wiley doesn't know that that's happened, right? So so in, in that scenario, Wiley has no idea that Jeff Durbin did it. He just found out too soon and doesn't even know that he found out too soon. And then his range of involvement can go in both directions from there. It could be that, you know, the timing's all off. And he just, when, when he said that, you know, he just barely had enough time to get to the bus station before he found out, you know, his timing's messed up or he's blending memories and he actually didn't find out till nine o'clock at night, 10 o'clock at night. It could be nothing. Or it could go far the other way to where he was actually a part of the plan where he would go in and case a place and then and then relay back to the others what the store looks like and and tell them what to do i think the that the latter is probably the least likely 
that that happened. But, you know, then again, there's just some weird timing there. Weird coincidences. Hey, guys, it is Ryan. I'm not sure if you know this about me, but I'm a bit of a fun fanatic when I can. I like to work, but I like fun, too. It's a thing. And now the truth is out there. I can tell you about my favorite place to have fun. Chumba Casino. They have hundreds of social casino style games to choose from with new games released each week. You can play for free anytime, anywhere And each day brings a new chance to collect daily bonuses. So join me in the fun. Sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. VTW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. Step into the world of power, loyalty, and luck. I'm going to make him an offer he can't refuse. With family, cannolis, and spins mean everything. Now, you want to get mixed up in the family business. Introducing the Godfather at ChumbaCasino.com. Test your luck in the shadowy world of the Godfather slot. Someday, I will call upon you to do a service for me. Play the Godfather, now at chumpacasino.com. Welcome to the family. VGW Group, no purchase necessary. Voidware prohibited by law. See terms and conditions, 18 plus. Leslie says, in your newest theory, you say this was a robber who panicked when Bill wouldn't let him leave the store. And once he saw Martinez parked outside and Pilo across the street, he shot Bill just so he could escape. Are you validating part or parts of Danny Martinez's initial statement in composite drawing? And what exactly are you validating? I think somebody will correct me if I'm wrong, but I don't think I've ever invalidated his initial statement. Parts of it, I mean, I, I think his back and forth at the car, you know, him like, well, I thought my car was back front. I don't buy that. I think he was scared. I think he was scared, and that's why he didn't. I think he heard the bangs, maybe wasn't didn't register what they were, started to the store and then saw somebody come out and I think he was scared. And instead of telling Pilo the reason I was going back and forth was because I was scared. It was because I thought my car was dying or whatever he said. But I, I believe what I believe and I think that I've I've kind of maintained this is that I believe that he did see somebody, like he said, in his first statement, which was from thirty to fifty feet away. He was starting to walk towards the store, saw the guy walk out from a distance, turn the corner and then was spooked, and then eventually got in his car and left. I think that happened. I've never thought that didn't happen, unless I don't remember what I used to think. But 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 there's there's never been anything indicated. I know there are people out there. There are people that are long time, you know, have long time been working on an interest in this case that don't believe he saw anyone. I just don't believe that. It doesn't make it doesn't make any sense for me to me for him to tell Pilo, knowing by the way. He knows Pilo was right there. So for him to go to Pilo and say, hey, I saw a guy leave the store, knowing that Pilo should have seen that person, and and Jim Clementi and I on Sunday are going to get into a little bit more about how Pilo may not have seen that person, it just doesn't, it doesn't add up. He could have just said, I was just in the parking lot, and you came up, and I left. I mean, it doesn't make sense for him to make the story up. It's... Is an initial statement. It it's it sounds it, it it has some veracity to it. Remember when we went over Gutierrez's statement originally, even back then. You remember me and Zach talking about like this is too it's too detailed. Like it doesn't. I don't know that it, that if he's lying or he's confused. But the fact that I know it was at eight oh five and I know it was eight twelve when I got into my house, and then we find later statements where it's like. He didn't even go home. He went to somebody else's house. And then another statement where he actually picked up a friend and they went out to a, a, a bar somewhere. And maybe it was earlier. Maybe it was later. And I heard about it on the TV or wait. No, I heard about it on the radio. It, the, none of that was consistent. His very initial statement didn't sound right. It was too detailed, too specific. 
there's no way that he knew it was 812 when he walked in the house. When you look at later, it, that's already too specific. But then you look at later, it's he didn't even go to his house. You know, so we were right in thinking that that was too specific. It was too strange. But Martinez obviously, you know, became a weapon of the state. He, for whatever reason, whether for pressure, uh, from pressure, self-preservation, or for some reward, changed his story in order to fit the state's conviction to help the state convict Jamie Snow. But if you go back to his initial statement, He's not overstating things. He's not too specific. He says the guy was, I think, about my height, which is whatever, about five foot eight. He was the guy was shorter. He was thin. He was wearing jeans. He had like a spring type jacket and a ball cap. That's the best description I can give you. It was quick, and he went around the corner like that. All that's the type of a statement that I would expect to see from someone who's telling the truth. I just and like I said, I know there's people that disagree with me, but in my opinion. His identification is the most valid. Luna is ridiculous. Carlos Luna, he was he was way too far away. The guy's wearing a hat and all the lighting comes from above. Because remember, he's walking, he's walking in front of boarded up windows. So there's no light from the store coming out to, to light up his face. There's only lights from above. He's wearing a ball cap. You can't see his face that well. So for Luna from 220 feet away or whatever it was. To say I can identify who that was and it's Jamie Snow, that's no, there's it's absolutely ridiculous. It's absolutely ridiculous. And of course, we know now that in the memo that the the sketch artist said that Luna told him he couldn't describe his face, didn't see it well enough. That is accurate, and, and I believe that. But as far as Martinez goes, I believe Martinez saw the killer leave the station. I do believe that. I believe that parts of his description that we can hang our hat on are probably things like height, basics of what he was wearing. I don't think you're going to get a facial description out of him from that distance. You know, he they'll gave he gave one, but I don't think you can put much weight into that. But but there are some things that he would have been able to see and I believe that he did in fact see someone before his story started getting crazy and evolving to help the state. I do believe his initial statement for the most part, yes. All right, Ellen says, didn't the perpetrator of the motel robbery, one of the Jeffs, jump the counter? Is that possible at the Clark Station? Maybe Bill was trying to get away and backing out after refusing to open the drawer and hit the panic button and the perp jumped the counter. Well, yeah, but no. So, yes, the uh, Jeff Miller in the O'Connell Lodge robbery. Now, keep in mind, we only have the details of two of the robberies he was convicted for. The Econo Lodge, he came in, jumped over the counter, got behind them, demanded money, demanded money out of the safe. The Clark Station, the employee was outside smoking a cigarette, holds him up at gunpoint, forces him inside aggressively, and I believe he got behind the counter there too and forces the money out. Again, wants to open the safe, can't. Didn't learn the lesson, I guess, from the Econo Lodge. The mobile station was not in the city of Bloomington, so we have very basic information there. We don't have, and I think Ray Wilson has foia from the sheriff's department, those records as well. But I'd like to see what the MO was there. At the Clark Station where Bill was killed, yes, he could have jumped over the counter, but no, he didn't need to because that counter is open on the end. So you can just walk around it. Also, there's not the counter where the customers stand, there's like a, a cigarette rack and there's two metal posts that go up on one part of it. So there's only about an 18 inch to two foot space of counter 
before the end where you could actually you could jump over it, which would be silly. I mean, because if you just step a half a step to your right, you could just walk around the end. There's no way somebody's going to jump that like Bo Duke. You know, when there's you know, there, it would been very easy for him to just walk around. I do think that the evidence indicates that the unsub was in fact behind the counter with Bill at some point. We get into a little bit more of that with Jim on Sunday, but you know, of course, you got the stool knocked over back there. You got Bill's body position that indicates that he was further out, not back behind the counter where the register is. Uh, the way that there's also some behavioral things about the drawer being open twice. So first time points the gun, give me the money. Bill hits it, opens it. This is just a theory, by the way, hypothesis. Bill gives him the money. Here you go. Shuts the drawer. And the guy's like, bullshit. There's, I know there's bigger bills under the tray. Has him open it up. At that point, I don't think that he's going to just going to take Bill's word for it, that there's nothing under the tray. So that's, I think, might have been when he physically went back behind the counter, grabbed the tray. I still think, and I don't know that Jim necessarily agrees with this, I still maintain from my silly amateur self that the reason the, the tray was taken was because the perp had touched it, that he had was the one that picked it up himself looked under it. I think that is probably when the silent alarm. This, and again, this is my my hypothesis based on what I see. You might see something totally different. But I, I think that with the timing being so close with the second drawer opening and the and the silent alarm, I think at some point Bill has to have a distraction in order to press the silent alarm. There's only two people in the store, not a lot to distract the guy. But I think it's very possible that the distraction was the guy is fumbling with the insert in the drawer and looking in to see if anything's underneath it. At that time, Bill reaches behind him and hits the silent alarm button. Jessica says, did Bill's autopsy say if there was gunshot residue or other evidence of close contact to the gun? Could the first shot have been during a struggle for the gun? And maybe the second shot was to ensure Bill didn't survive. In the autopsy, the ME states there's no soot or stippling on Bill, which and then he, and he testifies at trial that that indicates that the barrel of the gun was at least two to three feet away when it was fired. Uh, and so it means by that when you fire a weapon, it's not just the bullet that comes out the end. All of the gas and, and, and bits of, of gunpowder are still coming out on fire that shoot out the end of that barrel. And if you're within two or three feet, that hits, it, it'll burn right through your clothes, onto your skin, and you, you can see that that, 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 that impact of all those gases in the unburned or the burning gunpowder particles hitting the body. And there was none of that on Bill, which is an indication that the perp was at least two or three feet away from when he fired the shot. So probably didn't go off in a struggle. But I don't think they did any GSR on Bill. Not that I'm aware of that. That could be wrong about that. And if I am, I'll correct that next week. But also, I, I, I've i wondered for a long time if the ME checked the clothing for soot and stippling. Because Bill was wearing two shirts. He had an undershirt and another button-up shirt over it. And I don't know enough about how that soot and stippling would work to know that if you're wearing two shirts, if the shirts would be what catches the soot and stippling, and then when you cut the shirts away, there would be nothing on the skin. So that's something to look at. Another reason we need to find the clothes. Hello, it is Ryan, and I was on a flight the other day playing one of my favorite social spin slot games on Chumbacasino.com. I looked over at the person sitting next to me, and you know what they were doing? 
they're also playing Chumba Casino. Coincidence? I think not. Everybody's loving having fun with it. Chumba Casino's home to hundreds of casino style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere, even at 30,000 feet. So sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com to claim your free welcome bonus. That's ChumbaCasino.com and live the Chumba life. No purchase necessary. BTW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. Tracy says, just test DNA so we can get the bastard that really did this and let this innocent man free. After reading that, Bob, I got a question for you. Okay. If you could, what items from the crime scene would you test for DNA? Well, if I could, if I had a time machine, I would do electrostatic lists for footprints behind the counter. I would dust the register and the counter back by the register for fingerprints. I know some people have suggested the um, silent alarm button uh, that, you know, who pushed the silent alarm. Personally, my my opinion is there's really not a good explanation for anyone pressing that besides Bill. I don't think the perp would, the unsub would do it, but but definitely the register, uh, fingerprint the register, DNA swab the register, the all around the insert, the electrostatic lifts. I would love to test the blood that was found on the counter. If there was some kind of a scuffle based on where it was at in proximity to Bill's body, of course, we don't have a picture or a diagram of it where exactly it was at. So it's hard to tell if that's something that Bill might have like coughed up. You know, when people forget a lot in blood spatter that you have that secondary, especially if someone like Bill has heart or lungs punctured or the lungs punctured a lot of times in their, in their agonal respirations when they're, when they're dying, they'll, they'll cough or hack and, and spit some blood up. Um, but it's also possible there was some kind of scuffle and that may have come from the unsub. But that so that's if I had a time machine. Since I don't have a time machine, there's not a whole lot of options on what we could test. But I, my big one would be MVAC DNA testing of Bill's clothing for sure. I think that that is. I think that they came into contact. I think there was a scuffle, and I think there was likely the offender's DNA would be found on Bill's clothing. Landon says, "Is there a theory to why anyone would have changed the position of Bill's body?" Especially since we know it wasn't the first responders. Man, your guess is as good as mine. I, I can't think of another time when I've been more baffled by something than Bill's body being moved in the way it is. I mean, it made sense when William said the the medics did it, sort of, because you know if, if they're going to work on him and they want more open space to do so, then I would think they would pull him into an area where there's more open space rather than just flip him around 180 degrees and leave him in that same confined space. It doesn't doesn't make a lot of sense. But then, of course, the medics say they didn't touch him. But, you know, did they? It's, it's as you'll hear Jim say this week, like, what does that mean, I didn't touch him? Like, did they take a pulse? Did they put leads on him to, to run an EKG to check for his heart rate? And just didn't take any life-saving measures? Or does it mean they literally didn't touch him? But then, like I said, Gina, Jeannie Luna shows up an hour later and says that she still sees his feet sticking out. So who the hell got in there moved his body? I don't know. I mean, it's, it's obvious it was moved. Not only do we have both first responding officers describing him in the same way. And Pilos, again, when you're doing kind of that statement analysis, it's very specific how he described discovering the body. That's a moment you don't forget. He was approaching from the southeast, heading northwest towards the front door. Of course, the first place you're going to go is where? The door. Because he's coming from the east, remember the windows on the, the, the entire east side of the front of the building are completely boarded up, so you can't see through them. 
So literally the first place he'd come to where he could see into the store is the front door. And he looks in and his trigger to say, because uh, he, he says in the report, I saw his tennis shoes sticking out from behind the counter. And so I drew my weapon and went in. And that makes absolute perfect sense. You look up and all of a sudden you see a shoe. Okay, there is something happening. You pull the gun out and, and go in. So I, I, I think that's it's pretty clear that the body was moved. I don't think there's any, in my mind, there's zero question the body was moved from the way it was, it was positioned originally. Man, I don't know if somebody let the family go in there, and but even then, why move him like that? Unless they were, you know, they set him up to hug his body. I, I just don't know. I wish I, I wish I had an explanation. I've been racking my brain about it for over a week now, and I just, I cannot figure out how or why. All I can tell you is that he was moved. Brittany wants to know: Did Bill have any defensive wounds? No, he didn't really. I mean, he had some bruises on his arms. Uh, but they were older bruises. It sounds like they weren't like from that day. But that's something I want to revisit again. So I'm I'm starting to piece together what we're going to do for next week because we got Jim this week, and I'm going to add that to the list to really go back through the autopsy and look at that and see could those could those bruises be from a fight, you know, from somebody grabbing his arm. But I but I feel like in my mind I remember those were older wounds, older bruises because they were like maybe they said they were brownish in color or anything but I think I don't remember why I think that so I need to revisit that and find out. Michelle says I still wonder if Bill was trying to get to the storage room to lock himself in. Yeah, I've wondered that too. Oh, um there's a few things I'm I'm trying to put my time my my mind into the right time frame because I've 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 jumped ahead from this week's episode with Jim last night when we interviewed which you'll hear on Sunday uh and we get into the storage room a little bit but uh there's 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 a few possibilities that involve the storeroom, I guess, and you'll hear about those on Sunday. But yeah, it could have been Bill trying to get in there, lock himself in, or the unsub could have been back in the storage room, and that's why Bill came out from behind the counter. But in either case, Bill still ends up, you know, between the offender and the door. Nina says, "Could you please clarify the position of the stool again?" She says, "In the sketch, it is close to the register, but in episode seven oh four you stated that it was knocked over close to Bill's feet. And in which position was it close to his feet? The first one or the second one? Good question, because it's super confusing. And I contributed to the confusion. The reason is, we don't have a picture of the stool. So I, I don't know. It, it's not in the diagram. We don't have a picture of it. All we have is it described in the police reports that it was knocked over. Uh, and at the time, when I did episode 704, I thought Bill's body was positioned with his head to the east and his feet to the west, like with his feet still behind the counter. There's not a huge space behind the counter, so if his feet are behind the counter and the stool is behind the counter, then that's why I said the stool was near his feet, because his feet were pointed that way. Now, not only, we have a little more, I think Pamela found this uh, on the website, some, or on the, in the document somewhere, or noticed this. Because um, I don't remember where I found it, um, but I think it was from her and her working on her diagram. Now we know his feet were actually out in the store on the customer side of the counter, and it was his head that was behind the counter. So no, the stool was nowhere near his feet. But then also we found information that said that the stool was, it was written in somebody's report that the stool was actually tucked up like under the counter, like by the register, like in the in the corner and if you look at my diagram on the fan page, I drew it in the kind of the, the nook, the corner of the kind of L in the counter. 
and I think Pamela put it in the corner like where the counter meets the wall. I don't know which of those is accurate. I don't know if we know which is accurate because, you know, when I heard corner, I thought that was a corner. Sheared corner, thought that was a corner. But it's it's back up against the register behind the counter, kind of pushed up to the towards the front of the store. And no, so now, it, no, it was nowhere near Bill's feet in his final resting place because his feet were not even behind the counter. All right, our last question is from Catherine. Catherine says, I'm having trouble with the idea that someone turned Bill's body completely around and never admitted to it. A huge crime scene no-no. Is it more likely that witnesses might be misremembering? If not, what would be the reason? And all in all, does this bias anything in our search for the actual killer? I think we already covered the, um, the, the fact that the body was moved and we don't know why in our other question. But to her last point, it really does. It's it's a different crime scene, and it's a very different. You know, when we're when we're talking about a profile, we're trying to profile the unidentified subject or unsub, the offender that committed this crime. What we're doing is we're looking at everything on the crime scene, looking at what action caused that, and what thought was behind that action. We're analyzing behavior and decisions. So we've been thinking this whole time that it must be someone Bill knew because it never made sense. There has to be a triggering event. That caused this offender to decide to shoot Bill, to pull the trigger. And if Bill's behind the counter and the offender is on the customer side of the counter, we know at 8.15 the drawer is open for the last time. So the, the guy has the money and he is literally four feet from the door. And no one's around at that point. We don't have any other customers, no other transactions. Martinez pulled up, pulls up a few minutes after this because I don't. I think he just pulled up and then went straight around to starting to fill the air in his tires. It's not a pay pump; it's free, which means it's literally grab the to- the hose and stick it on your tire. So he pulled up maybe eight nineteen, eight eighteen to be conservative. So at eight fifteen, the offender has the money, which is what he came for. There's no one in the store. There's no one in the parking lot. He can just walk out and get out of there, which is the goal of every armed robber. The fact that he stayed for five minutes and then shot Bill when he had no reason to, when he could leave, that behavior had to come from a thought. What triggered him? And so what we profiled was that the only reason that that myself or Jim could really explain that is that the guy was pissed at Bill. That they had, which leads us to believe they had a known relationship. They were arguing about something. Maybe it could have been that Bill said, I pressed the alarm, the cops are coming. He's like, you bastard, and shoots him and leave. But that still doesn't make a lot of sense behaviorally because even if you're mad, you're mad because now there's a good chance you're going to get caught. Taking a bigger risk doesn't seem likely when you don't have to. You don't have to. You could just turn around and run away. So so we're kind of left with that behavior tells us that this person knew Bill. Bill recognized him. He knew him. They had some kind of beef. They had, a, they, had, they had an argument. And that personal issue between the two of them was what triggered the person to pull the trigger. So that's where we were. Now, looking at the crime scene, we don't know. There's some, there's some circumstances. You know, we don't... We don't know how much Bill moved around after he was shot. He wasn't going to die instantly. 
I think it was the ME that had testified that it, it would have been quick within seconds when he because he lost blood pressure immediately, which is going to put you down not not brain dead, not dead dead, but your body is ceasing to function for the most part within seconds. But he, maybe he could have moved. But at least now with his feet the other way, and we're looking at that crime scene, it's really difficult to come up with a scenario where he's shot standing behind the counter. He didn't crawl out to where he is because his head would have been facing to the east. You know, unless he's crawling backwards, he wasn't. He didn't crawl out there. It's just hard to imagine a scenario where he ends up over there unless that's where he was standing. That he was standing on the customer side of the counter. That means, and then when you look at how his body's positioned, you look at the entrance angle of the wounds. The one that comes in high and goes down low into his heart tells us he was slumped over forward when he got shot. It's a confined space, so he can't move around too much. That tells me. The most likely, I'm not saying this is what happened, but the most likely scenario is that the unsub is the one behind the counter and that Bill, whether intentionally or coincidentally, is blocking that man's path of egress, is blocking the unsub's way of getting out of the store and getting out to safety. Now things have changed. Now that five minutes can be explained. It doesn't have to be a personal relationship. It doesn't have to be an argument. There is a legitimate reason why the unsub may have decided to shoot Bill. And that reason is that he needed to get out of there and Bill was standing in his way. Now, that doesn't necessarily mean that Bill was was physically holding the person there. In fact, I think that's probably likely not the case because we don't have the up-close stippling of the gun. I think more likely it was stalling. Finding some way to stall him. Well, hang on. I, I, I think there's a key here. I might be able to get into the safe because he knows he had already pressed the alarm and the police were coming. And then once Pilo is visible, Danny Martinez is visible, the guy's panicking. He's got to get out of there. And now Bill maybe feels emboldened by the fact that the police are here. Surely this guy's not going to shoot me while the police are here. And he decides to be the hero and he's going he's to hold him up and keep him there. And the guy just in, I don't know if panic's the right word, but in desperation, out of desperation to get out of there, pulls the trigger, shoots Bill, and takes off. So with that information, simply by flipping Bill's body and moving the position where he was standing, now we have a completely different profile of our killer, a different type of person that we're looking for, not some teenager with a beef with Bill, who came in there with the intention of threatening or hurting Bill, and the robbery was just staging to make it look like that's what it was for. Because it wasn't the main purpose, because the guy stayed there for five minutes after he had the money. Now, it very well could have just been an armed robber that was trying to get in and trying to get out, and Bill was in his way, and that's why he pulled the trigger, and then he left, and that is going to change the profile, and that is what we're going to talk with Jim Clemente about on Sunday. Truth and Justice is an NBI Studios production and is distributed by Wondery. Produced and edited by Mike Bussing, and all music for the show is created and composed by PutThemInASong.com. Our follow-up logo was created by Zach Weaver, and all of our font across all of our logos and banners were created by Tate Krupa of Red Swan Graphic Design. You can find more of Tate's work on Etsy. 
Thank you to Katie Ross of CreatedInTandem.com for designing, creating, managing, and maintaining our website, Truth and Justice Pod, where you can view all photos and documents discussed in every episode. A big thank you to our transcription team, Pamela Westby, Kathy McElhaney, Charlena White, Kaywood Yamnick, Ginger Fiola, Edith Swanneck, and Jen Reese Incandela. And as always, thank you to all of you for all of your engagement and support. If you like the show and you'd really like to support us, you can do so in a number of ways. To financially support the show, you can go to patreon.com slash truthandjustice. On the Patreon page, you can pledge as little as $3 a month, and we also have reward levels on Patreon that include access to behind-the-scenes videos of the tapings of our Friday follow-up episodes, ad-free versions of all of our episodes, Truth and Justice Army t-shirts and hats, and even the opportunity to co-host one of our Friday follow-up episodes. You can also help us out by going to iTunes and leaving us a five-star rating and review. And lastly, you can always support us by supporting the companies that sponsor this program. If you have a new case that you'd like us to consider for future seasons, you can submit your cases on our website, Truth and Justice Pod. Just click the case submission button and fill out the form. And the most important thing that you can do is engage in the investigations. You can keep in touch with us through our email at theories at truthandjusticepod.com. You can like our Facebook page or join in on the conversation on the Truth and Justice Podcast fan page. For all of you tweeters, you can connect with us on Twitter at TruthJusticePod. To follow our personal accounts on social media, I can be found at BobRuffTruth. Mike can be found at Murb Gaming, M-U-R-R-B-G-A-M-I-N-G. And Zach is at Z to the Q. And don't forget that we always have our 24-7 voicemail line open for questions, comments, and tips on our cases. That phone number is 269-224-2833. However you do it, stay engaged, stay in touch. But as for now, we're signing off. I'm Bob Ruff. I'm Zach Weaver. And I'm Mike Bussing. And this has been Truth and Justice. Truth and Justice.